When we are gone and forgotten, our buildings will keep on proclaiming that here have lived people who had a heart for the needs of children. Reverend Klein, 1929. Even though the buildings are gone, my son Andy and I have uncovered the long-forgotten stories of the people who lived there, worked there, and died there. They were at the same time ordinary and extraordinary, and we hope you will be inspired by the sacrifices they made. By sharing their stories, we ensure that the people who had a heart for the needs of children will be remembered. Welcome to The Homes. My name is Karen Thaliker. And I'm Andrew Newell. We're your hosts as we explore the challenges and joys of life at an institution housing orphans and old folks in rural Iowa during the year 1929. brought many changes to the world. Penicillin was discovered. Charles Lindbergh flew the spirit of St. Louis for the last time. Walt Disney released Steamboat Willie. And Herbert Hoover had just been elected president in November by an overwhelming margin. As 1929 started, Iowa had 27,000 flu cases for the week. The newspapers indicated that teachers in Miami, Florida were being taught how to spank students with kindness. Teachers were told to wait 24 hours from the infraction, so the emotion and excitement was gone. As 1929 began, the newspapers were filled with stories about prohibition and bootlegging. It had been nine years since alcohol had been banned nationwide by constitutional amendment. But Iowa's liquor laws had always been a source of controversy. In Iowa, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was leading reporters on tours of establishments serving liquor, despite prohibition, with no policemen in sight. Being a river town and having a larger population, Muscatine had its share of criminal activity. The Anti-Saloon League was telling Iowans that the success of prohibition depended on four groups. The private citizen, the law enforcement official, the court, and the church to shoulder the responsibility toward the dry law. By 1929, the Kleins had been at the homes for seven years. In addition to Reverend and Mrs. Klein, their three children were with them. Reverend Klein was 57 and Mrs. Klein was 47. Daughter Sammy was married and living with her husband, Carl. The Kleins' next oldest child, Herb, was 23 and would be married the following year. My grandma, Erna, was in nursing training. In addition to caring for her two younger children, Mrs. Klein was in charge of the old folks. Ms. Louise Wittig, age 65, was the house mother for the older girls and the young children. The home's monthly newsletter, called The Messenger, encouraged readers to make New Year's resolutions. Almost every month, Reverend Klein had his own column in The Messenger, but the rest of the newsletter was filled with brief fiction pieces, advertisements from local businesses, and additional information about what was happening at the homes. With the exception of Reverend Klein's column, we believe the editor of the newsletter wrote quite a bit of the newsletter, and the president of the board, Reverend Felch, also contributed. The messenger was meant to build a relationship between the readers and the homes in the hopes of receiving both financial and spiritual support. Andy and I were surprised to see the New Year's resolution in the January newsletter. We had never considered that people 100 years ago shared that tradition with us, but it seems New Year's resolutions have been around for a long time, not just 100 years ago or even 500 years ago, but 4,000 years ago, the ancient Babylonians were setting their intentions for the new year. That's thousands of years of people not reaching their weight loss goals. 
Here are some of the resolutions from the messenger that they wrote might be helpful if tried out. I will be a better listener, because I can learn much more with my eyes and ears than with my tongue. I will be prompt in all the services at God's house, for I have no more right to waste his time as I have to waste my own. I will admit when I do not know a thing, and save myself from further ignorance on the subject. I will be diligent in prayer, for I cannot live without prayer any more than a plant can live without sunshine. I will not criticize others any more than I want them to criticize me. I will face the future with courage, fully aware that our Heavenly Father cares for me. I will try to put myself in the other fellow's place and see things from his viewpoint. I will find time in the mad rush of material things for the things pertaining to my soul. I will endeavor to do my very best in all the things that I undertake, so that 1930 will find me further in my travel toward God than 1929 did. I will scatter all the sunshine that I can in this good year of 1929. I will faithfully remember that there are others on the highway of life who do not know the way and will help them to walk in it. I will give of what I have to those in want so that they may see that I am walking in the way. I will, with God's help, keep the above resolutions. Sometimes I think we assume that people who lived a hundred years ago or even a thousand years ago were somehow different than we are now. But really, those resolutions show that even though the times are different, our basic human struggles remain the same. We struggle to listen. We care too much about material things. We spend more time criticizing others than in advancing our own personal faith or spirituality. The January newsletter was used as a time to reflect on Christmas and thank everyone for their gifts. Just as we do with different organizations around the holidays now, people would make a special effort to donate food and presents around the holidays. Erna's sister M was just a few months old when the Kleins moved to the homes. She remembered feeling a bit envious at all the presents the children from the homes would receive, but she was keenly aware that having her parents with her was the most precious gift of all. Aunt M was born in North Dakota and was just nine months old when the Kleins arrived at the homes. Growing up there meant that Aunt M was part of everything that went on there. Sometime after the Kleins left in 1941, the board of the homes moved the superintendent and his family into a house in town, so their experience would have been quite different from that of the Klein children. I've seen photos of Aunt M as a toddler perched on someone's lap at the homes. She lived there until she graduated from high school. She was considerably younger than her siblings, and how odd it must have felt to share her parents with so many other people, both young and old. M wrote about her childhood at the homes back in 1993. Here's what she said. My memories begin with Dorothy Tremont and Mr. Hertz. They were residents of the old folks' home and a bit younger than most of the residents. My mother was kept very busy caring for the older people, so she was happy to have Mr. Hertz pick me up. He would come and knock on our apartment door after breakfast, and he always welcomed me with, Emmy, my baby, come to go bye-bye? And I, of course, loved the attention. He would take me for long walks around the grounds, pointing out the various animals, kinds of trees, vegetation, naming flowers, and all growing things. 
At the end of our walk, we would stop in the kitchen for coffee, milk, or tea with other treats like bread or coffee cake, or kuchen, as I called it. Dorothy Tremont would then take over my care. She would announce, it's my turn now. Come, baby, go bye-bye with me. Then she would entertain me with patty cake, hugging and loving me, and showing me off to all the other residents. So began my day, full of cooperation and care from the people in the old folks' home. M also recalled her mother's role at the homes. The doctors came whenever anyone was sick. I was especially fond of Dr. Klein, who was no relation to Reverend and Mrs. Klein, because he resembled my dad in size and his hair was pure white and a little curly. He was also gentle, quiet, and kind. He gave his services freely and trained my mom to be the nurse for the old people. Every morning, my mother did rounds, spending a few minutes in every single person's room first the ladies, and then the men. They could tell her of their aches and pains or relate their difficulties with someone in the group. With her sweet, loving character, she would counsel them to be forgiving and loving, and how individual difference in quirks had to be overlooked. When I was very small, my mom would take me along. I would sit on her lap. Many of the old people would share a piece of candy with me as a way of getting my mother to extend their time with them. When M was old enough, she went to nursing school, but left when she had an appendectomy and didn't return. She became a teacher instead and made significant contributions in the field of special education. Aunt M helped to keep my grandma Erna's memory alive for me. This is how M concluded her recollection from 1993. The older I have gotten, the more I am aware that my life was unique because I really felt that I grew up with 110 brothers and sisters and 50 grandparents. How many other children in this world have had this privilege? I learned the love of children having been raised in an orphanage that was blessed to have an old people's home along with it. I feel the Lord has blessed me by letting me be born late in my parents' life and experiencing the life that I did at the children's home in Muscatine. Nineteen twenty-nine is an important year for the homes because of their expansion. Because of the need to accept more children, a decision was made to borrow money for a new building to house the girls. Readers were kept up to date on the building's progress and requests for donations to pay for the mortgage will become increasingly desperate as the years go on. In January of 1929, there is talk of progress, but also the need for larger donations. Quote, the new building is well underway. The lathers are at work, and soon the plasterers will be busy. Our heating plant is about installed so that we can heat the building. Then, as the plastering is finished, we expect to let things dry out completely before the finishing trim is put on. In this way, we hope to have a much better job. We expect to have the building finished for dedication by Easter." It was noted that they were filled to capacity, and no one knew could be admitted until the new building was ready. There were 52 children and 40 old folks. The homes had borrowed $50,000. This is about three quarters of a million dollars in today's money when adjusted for inflation. They had received several donations of $500 but needed donations of $1,000. They had received only $7,136 with almost $43,000 to go. In early 1929, the U.S. economy was doing well. 
but interest rates were being raised in order to slow the market. The people at the homes had no way of knowing what was coming in October. The newsletter didn't mince words when calling on their readers to exercise their Christian duty in support of the homes. The newsletter asked, Who will send us a check of $1,000? Is there no one who would like to head the list next month with that sum? Elsewhere, they are building new homes on faith. These people make the claim that they solicit no funds, that all the funds come in answer to their prayers. Are we not praying hard enough, or what is wrong? Are those people better Christians than we? Perhaps they are. At any rate, we must beg for your funds, and then they are slow coming in. I wonder if our people are as thankful as they ought to be. The list is still open. Let us have your checks. God has blessed you with a good crop. Why not show your gratitude by remembering those who need help? We are awaiting your letter. For some children, the homes was a temporary place. They might stay for a few weeks or a few months. For others, they were there for years, but when a child turned 18, they could no longer stay at the homes. There are times when the newsletter reached out to readers to provide monetary support for an older child's education especially if they were going into the ministry. One of these children, Glenn, was attending Wartburg College in Clinton, Iowa, about 70 miles from Muscatine. The college was named after Wartburg Castle in Eisenach, Germany. It was the place where Martin Luther hid out while there was a price on his head. While there, Luther translated the Bible from Latin into German, the language of his people. Even though two congregations and another pastor had contributed to pay for Glenn's tuition, books, and pocket money, more money was still needed. Because of the number of children at the homes, and not wanting to show preferential treatment, the policy was that employees could not pay for things for an individual child. They tried to treat everyone fairly, which meant that sometimes children who should have furthered their education could not, because they could not find a donor or a family member to cover the expense. It's hard to imagine taking care of 50 children on a day-to-day basis. In January, Reverend Klein was happy to announce that a kind family had pledged to pay Glenn's tuition and board and included the note from the family. It read, Dear Reverend Klein, Papa wishes to pay for the boys' education for the ministry. Please advise us how to send the money and when. Glenn went on to graduate from Wartburg College and attend the seminary. He became a pastor and would even preach occasionally at the homes when the superintendent was gone. My parents went to college at Warper with Glenn's son. When I think about all of the people Glenn ministered to, the families he comforted, the families he celebrated with, that the homes had a part in raising him and then supporting his education not only changed his life, it changed the lives of all of the people he served as a pastor. In a messenger newsletter from the 1950s, They announced that Glenn would be the featured speaker at their June celebration. The announcement gave additional background on Glenn's past. It read, Pastor Glenn is an example of that dedication and service whose life is a part of the Lutheran home's history. Born of immigrant parents, Charles and Mary, in Fontenelle, Iowa, in the heart of winter, January 11, 1911. Glenn was one of three children. His mother died when he was 18 months old. His father was busy making wagons, so the youngest children, Glenn and Carl, were sent to the orphanage a few years later when their dad was partially crippled due to an accident. 
From 1917 to 1928, the Lutheran home provided Glenn and Carl their service. Glenn graduated from Muscatine High School and Wartburg Academy College in Clinton in 1934. In 1937, he graduated from Wartburg Seminary with a Bachelor of Divinity degree. The newsletter went on to say that Glenn had been a pastor in Iowa his whole career and that social welfare had been a great emphasis of his ministry. The reason for Glenn and his family being at the homes was not uncommon. If a child couldn't go on to school, they tried to give them training to earn a living like field work or cooking. The children from the homes went on to be pastors, teachers and farmers, members of the military, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers. The homes didn't just ask for money in the newsletter, they also asked for food. In January of 1929, every day, day in and day out, they were feeding 52 children, 40 old folks, plus all the staff and the Klein family. The homes had their own farming operation that produced crops, or attempted to produce crops depending on the year. They had cows to milk and raised hogs and some cattle, but it was not enough so congregations and businesses would bring food of their own. In January, it was noted that a large car arrived that was piled high with good things. The visitors brought 118 quarts of canned fruit, a bushel of apples, 20 pounds of soap, clothing, and shoes. Just providing shoes for all the children would be a major undertaking. A large family indeed, wrote Reverend Klein and is in need of many friends and their help. Will you help? In January of 1929, people were looking forward into the new year. The Des Moines Tribune reflected on what Iowa was like in the past, in 1835, in the present day of 1929, and also what they thought the future, the year 2000, might hold. The article asked, What do the 93 years of the immediate future hold? The life of the little lad who accepts the hourglass from the hand of Father Time should easily reach the year 2000. If the progress in science and invention is as great in the century to come as it has been in the century just closed upon, what wonders do we who live in 1929 look forth? The year 2000. Some of us won't be living then, but our children will, and our children's children. We spend a weekend in Paris, then, or London, as easily as we spend it now in Chicago. Will air travel be as common as highway travel is now? Will some form of airplane be easily manipulated by the average citizen, as one of Henry's Model T's is now manipulated? Will we then have solved the problems of old age and dependency? Will we know what to do with bad boys and bad girls? Will we be spending millions of dollars for penal institutions and reform schools and insane asylums, or will we have found a better way? Will we honestly be living fuller, freer, finer, happier lives, or will the very possession of everything we want tend to make us dissatisfied, ambitionless, and unhappy? What are the promises of the next century? What the promise and what the portent? Will we be nearer God, or Will all of us have slipped into the hopeless disillusionment of the cynic? Ah, Father Time, you hand us a mystery with that little hourglass of yours. What does the future hold? Wouldn't it be thrilling now, today, this minute, 
to hold the key to the eternal mystery of the centuries. In January of 1929, they were asking whether in the future we would be living fuller, freer, finer, happier lives. Or will the very possession of everything we want tend to make us dissatisfied, ambitiousless, and unhappy? The column asked, what the promise and what the portent? Portent is a word that we don't use much anymore. It means a sign or a warning that something momentous or calamitous might happen. The column wondered what was possible and what was the danger. For the people who lived and worked at the homes, they had very little in the way of material possessions. They were devoting their lives to the children and the old folks. I think sometimes today that we forget that people like that existed and still exist. We don't want the stories of the homes in Muscatine to be forgotten. Thanks for listening. As January ends and the next month begins, Iowa is experiencing record cold temperatures. We hope you will join us for episode three of The Homes, as we share the story of one of the most important people in The Homes' history, and as we learn about life in February of 1929. This podcast was researched and hosted by Andrew Newell and Karen Thaliker, and sound was edited by Robert Newell. Special thanks to Wartburg College in Waverly, Iowa, for the use of their podcast studio. If you have additional stories and information about the Lutheran homes of Muscatine from 1921 through 1941, please send us a direct message on our Instagram at Life at the Homes.